RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. Um, right off the bat, I want to acknowledge that the medical community has had a loss, um, EB from Nurse Life RN and EB Eats, um, tragically passed away this month. And our love and compassion and support goes out to his family and um, everyone that he touched a lot of lives. He was a very, very special person. And um, that's why so many people followed him and laughed with him. And um, a lot of people said things like, I, I never knew that I would cry about the death of someone that I never met. And, um, you know, I only spoke to EB online. I never met him in person, but I felt that way um, because he was such a special person. So um, we love EB. We love his family. And um, I, I hope that they're I hope that they're doing OK. And I hope that you're doing OK. Um, this episode is um, something that. I recorded, we recorded many, 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 many months ago. We recorded an episode about COVID and about nutrition and vent settings specifically for COVID patients. We recorded this in January and it kind of sat in my box for a long time. And I even started to think maybe I wouldn't post it because... I think maybe I was naive. I think I thought that the vaccine was going to dramatically shift this pandemic, and it did. Um, The problem is, I'm sure as you're all aware, Delta variant, um, lack of vaccines in certain areas, it's not over. And um, we're seeing big flare-ups again. Um, It never went away, but I was hopeful that we could manage it. Now we're looking at places like Florida. It's exploding. Um, They're like my ICU was last spring. And it's almost worse in a way now because everyone's exhausted and no one has grieved the trauma of last year. And we haven't had time to process it. And everyone everyone has been working short-staffed for this time and probably before that. Um... So I pulled this one out again because unfortunately, I mean, it's a great episode, but unfortunately for us, it's relevant again because many, many nurses are writing in um, as I record this today, August 8th, 2021. Um, A lot of nurses are writing me things saying, my ICU had three COVID patients last week and now we have 25 and most of them are unvaccinated. 
Um, so I just wanted to touch base with some of our COVID education again. If you are experiencing this um, and you're feeling burnout, we love you. And I'm sorry that you have to go through this again. Um, your mental health is extremely important. Please reach out to whoever you need to. If you like therapy, if you like meditation, if you um, need to see, you know, friends on Zoom or whatever you have to do for yourself, because this is not an easy situation and it's very difficult to manage alone. And I know that from experience. This episode is one of those great medical episodes. Um, you know, we do some social um, episodes here. We do medical stuff. We do questions. We do doctors and nurses interacting. This is uh, the type of episode I really love. First of all, we have two amazing healthcare workers, um, Stephanie Schwartz. She is a registered dietitian working in Brooklyn. Um, she do- has the Instagram handle, That Dietitian Life, where she makes really funny memes. Um, and she just gave us tons of education. Also, one of my favorite doctors, Obi Ajulu Anozi. Um, he's an intensivist in Georgia. He also took time to join us and talk about COVID patients and vent settings. He has a wealth of information on his Instagram page, ICU Explained. I love looking at his videos and um, there's tons, tons of information if you want to learn about the ICU. Just a quick note, um, Stephanie actually messaged me and I was so thankful that she did after we recorded this episode and she pointed out that I was using the wrong term for a registered dietitian. I referred to the dietitians as dietary several times in this episode, and for that, I am extremely embarrassed. That is not the term that you should use. Um, They are registered dietitians, and dietary sort of harken back to uh, the old history of uh, dietitians, and it's not really a word that's used anymore. And so for that, I am very sorry, and I'm very glad that Stephanie brought that to my attention. So you will hear me say that here in this episode. I will not be saying that going forward. And so don't be mad at me, registered dietitians. I love you. Okay, here we go. Um, Okay, so thank you guys so much for joining me. Um, I'm so excited to have you both. If you want to introduce yourselves, maybe Stephanie, if you want to start. Sure. I'm Stephanie. I am a clinical dietitian working in an acute care hospital in New York City. My primary focus is oncology, but I also see a lot of med surge patients and I have a background in in critical care nutrition as well. And in my spare time, I run an Instagram account called That Dietitian Life, where I chronicle all things pertaining to life as a dietitian. And um, I'm Obi Ajulu Anozi, or people just call me Obi. I'm an intensivist working uh, in Macon, Georgia. I'm about a year and a half uh, out of fellowship. And um, I have the Instagram handle, uh, ICU Explained. I wanted, we were originally going to do a topic about critical care patients and dietary needs. And then I was looking also, Obi, at your account with like all the vent settings and all of that stuff that you're doing. And I just thought we could do an overall episode, especially I think it's relevant because um, I don't know how it's going for you guys, but at least for my experience with COVID this year, we've had a lot of patients in the ICU for a lot longer than normal. Um, so it, it's not the normal patients that I'm u- used to seeing. So I guess their management is different. And I thought we could talk about 
um, the differences between them and a normal ICU vented patient? Sure. So I kind of like to explain this by using a sports nutrition metaphor. And I feel like in our field, critical care nutrition and sports nutrition are considered opposite ends of the spectrum, but there's actually a lot of parallels to be made. So, you know, when patients are in the ICU, their body is, or, you know, they've just had um, intense surgery, their body's running a marathon, essentially. And anyone who understands the concept of running a marathon or has thought about it at all knows that proper fueling is going to impact your performance. So it's similar in the ICU. And that's why as dietitians, we're really carefully calculating how much calories and protein and fluid patients need. Um, you know, when you run a marathon, if you don't eat enough, you are not going to have good performance. You're going to tire out. And on the flip side, if you eat too much, it's going to weigh you down. You're not also not going to do as well. So, you know, we really want to be finding that sweet spot for our ICU patients. And it's especially critical in the first week that patients are getting adequate nutrition and especially protein because ICU patients are catabolic. Um, you know, our skeletal muscle is being broken down to make the acute phase proteins to fuel um, gluconeogenesis. So patients are pretty rapidly losing protein. And that's why we want to make sure that we get in there regardless of the patient's body habitus to make sure that we're feeding them adequately to prevent that breakdown and, you know, preserve their lean body mass. And that has huge implications for not only how they do in the ICU, but also their functional status down the line, how they do when they get to the floor, when they go to rehab. That was a really good answer. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> um, Obi, do you have anything to, that you want to add to that? No, I mean, uh, uh, I, I agree, um, especially in the face of, of critical illness. Energy needs, I think a lot of times we kind of, we recognize peripherally that there are energy needs, but because of all of the other, there are a lot of, a slew of other potential complications that happen when we try to aggressively uh, uh, feed critically ill patients, especially when you consider a lot of the comorbids that they're coming in with or the nature of critical illness, which could impair the ability to absorb. It's one of those things where you have to find the balance between rec the recognition that a patient is critically ill and needs nutrition to fuel you know, the immune system and that which is fighting the illness versus the ability of the body to actually absorb that nutrition. You know, we, we've put a lot of patients on the ventilator who, who um, have otherwise done well and, and can otherwise be weaned from the ventilator, but have suffered some setbacks such as ilias. Ilias is, is quite common. And, and it delays extubation. It delays the ability to extubate a patient because quite frankly, nobody wants to, to, to extubate a patient who can immediately aspirate and, and end up back on the ventilator. Um, there's been literature out there that has suggested that you know aggressive feeding, uh, aggressive enteral nutrition does not necessarily improve, improve the outcomes. So I, I agree, we need to, to estimate and try to 
meet the, the calorie needs and the nutritional needs of our, of our ill patients. But my, my only uh, concern is what is the safe way to get there? Well, I want to ask when you say aggressive feeding, um, I mean, we do know that we need to start ICU patients slowly and mm-hmm. that we don't want to overfeed them. Like I was saying with my um, marathon uh, analogy, you don't want to, you know, be overfed because then that'll drag you down. We know in ICU feeding, mm-hmm. if we feed patients too much, you know, it's going to increase CO2 production and exactly. cause hyperglycemia. So is that what you're referring to when you talk about um, the literature that shows aggressive overfeeding? Yeah, for the most part, you're feeding to goal versus just kind of giving trickle feeds, you know, comparing the outcomes. Some of them have looked at in terms of complications such like hyperglycemia, CO2 production, you know, do we get patients off the ventilator faster? Do, do we improve our outcomes? Um, for the most part, it's kind of equivocal. And, and if we advance feeds to goal versus just kind of uh, um, maybe set a, a, a modest rate, which is what I prefer to do, just set a modest rate and kind of just hold it there, the outcomes don't necessarily differ. Yeah, and that's, of course, why you know, we're always reevaluating the patients and what they're tolerating and what they can handle. You know, guidelines say in the first week you can feed conservatively and then possibly ramp up from there if the patient's tolerating it. I think mm-hmm. one thing that's kind of tough with nutrition in general, both in the ICU and in the hospital in general, is it's hard to see outcomes from it. You know, when a patient gets off the vent, no one is saying, oh, it's because their feeds got to goal. And Mm -hmm. with good reason, we shouldn't be saying that. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of hard to know if down the line, maybe there are um, results of getting the adequate nutrition that we just don't really know right away. It's a hard thing to measure, I guess, is what we're saying, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a fine balance. And and especially with this pandemic and and the kind of patients we're getting, you know, Patients are so critically ill, even starting them on 10 to 20 cc's, we're seeing patients that have very high residuals. I mean, it's yeah. not to just very high residuals, ileus, hyperglycemia. We're seeing that even with modest, very modest feeding rates. So it's one of those things where they have nutrition requirements. But that's when I start talking about what's the safe way to get there. Right. It's pretty much speaking from the experience and the observation that sometimes even putting people on 10 to 20 cc's there, it's hard to imagine that much is getting absorbed when they have so much output coming from their OG tubes. Yeah, definitely have seen that mm-hmm. um, involvement in the GI tract and some crazy, yeah. pretty crazy residuals exactly. uh, during the pandemic. So how, where are you with TPN? What are your thoughts? I feel like it's almost like a dicey subject to go into. I, I I don't necessarily, I don't have anything against TPN. It's not something that I won't sit here and say that I won't sit here and say that I use it very frequently, mm-hmm. but, but in, in the last month I've, I've used it on patients with different, different pathologies. For instance, you know, I had a patient that came, she had a, a, a metabolic acidosis but not an but not an anion gap, but an elevated beta hydroxybutyrate. It was clear that this patient was just not able. If you looked at her history, she's not she's not absorbing anything. Right. So we're tra- this patient's in a starved catabolic state, right? The catabolic state will preclude, you know, uh, um, 
you're, you're going to develop ketoacids, right? You're going to mm -hmm. be breaking down everything. Glucagon is the predominant hormone. You're going to be under mobilizing whatever fatty acid stores and, and gluconeogenesis, as you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And this is a patient where, oh, we're just running insulin drips for, for days upon days upon days because, oh, there's, there's a, there's a very small anion gap and she has a metabolic acidosis, but the, but the renal function is fine. So the thinking point is, I mean, look at her history. She has not gotten any nutrition in, in weeks. This is a predominant catabolic state. So then I immediately sanctioned TPN right, because right. it's about getting some form of nutrition. And once she, she started to get nutrition, eventually we could try to start getting some feeds in. Once right. she kind of perked in, her gap closed immediately. The, the beta hydroxy went down. So um, in those kind of situations, I've used it. Or, or you know, if you have a patient who um, is a surgical abdomen and you know it's going to be prolonged, you know, then definitely use TPN until a surgeon kind of uh, gives you the uh, the blessing to start using the gut again. I mean, those situations, yeah, TPN has its role. Definitely. Um, I do not like it. Um, in COVID-19 patients. Um, reason why I don't is because it's a lot of volume. Mm -hmm. And and those patients, you know, I you're, you're trying to maintain a, a, an even to even negative fluid balance if you possibly can. And it makes it a little bit more difficult to achieve that balance with so much uh, with so much uh, fluid that's being administered from uh, from TPN in general. So I generally don't use it there, but it, I mean it definitely has its place. Right. Because we definitely use it in a few situations with COVID patients where mm -hmm. they couldn't tolerate feeds in their mm -hmm. first week, which is what the COVID guidelines for critical care nutrition that came out in the spring recommended doing. Mm -hmm. um, I personally did not order the TPN, so I can't speak to uh, what mm -hmm. they were able to accommodate in terms of fluid balance, but we've used it a few times uh, for that scenario. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I mean, it, a lot of this is out of, out of the box. There's the guidelines, and then there's, there's right, and there's you know, real there's life. <laughs> a there's a subjective evaluation, and then there's the out of the box thinking. And, and yeah. like I said, I mean, it could be used appropriately. It's just I think it's a lot of it is, is, is practice preference, mm -hmm. and um, and obviously the suggestions from a dietitian and just kind of the multimodal approach. I mean, it can have its place too. We're also using diuretics on these patients too, so I'm not saying that you can't use TPN and mm -hmm. not achieve a good fluid balance. It's, it's not necessarily my go-to approach, but I mean, if it was suggested to me, it hasn't been necessarily suggested on rounds or anything, but if it was, I would definitely be, be open to considering it. Right, right, everyone's gonna be different. Mm -hmm. um, I have a quick question. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned residuals, yeah. um, mm -hmm. just in general. What do you think, important, unimportant? I've worked with attendings that have very different opinions about residual. Some basically don't even want to hear it. They don't care. It's not important. There's literature saying it's nothing. And then some are like, I want to know. I want to document it every shift. Yeah. So actually, recent literature has said you don't need to be checking it unless there's another sign of intolerance and that you should not hold feeds for residuals under 500 cc. I think every nurse I've ever talked to has said there is no way I would not hold feeds if a patient's residuals was above like two or 300. The way I look at it is I think it's one piece of our assessment. I think, you know, let's also look, is the patient distended? Do they have aspiration risk? Do they have nausea, vomiting? I think when we only hold feeds because of residuals such as 
100 or so are a fairly low number, I think that's doing a patient a disservice, but I think we can consider it in context of other things. Yeah, I totally agree with that, actually. I, I'm a, a little more on the side of, depending on the patient, to, you know, like you're saying, depending on the patient, right. I'll be a little more apt to let it inch a little bit higher and I'll just recheck it like an hour, recheck it, you know. Right. Yeah. Versus just like holding it because then you get busy and then the patient hasn't been fed for four or five hours. You know? Exactly. And, you know, when we calculate tube fees for our patients, you know, whether it's over 20, 22, 24 hours, you know, we're calculating it to meet their needs in that time. So when feeds get held for an hour, two hours, the patient can lose out on a decent amount of nutrition. Yeah. How do you calculate that? Oh, where do I begin? Um, uh, give me, give me like the layman's term, the layman's ex- so example. So there's a few. Well, the gold standard for calculating patients' needs is to use indirect calamitry. I can never even say that word. Um, basically, you have a metabolic cart. Like three hospitals have this. So what most of us do is we use predictive equations. Um, there's an equation called the Penn State equation that frequently gets used in critical care. There's a couple other um, calorie per kilogram equations that we use, and you know we'll factor a lot of things into um, what range of calories we do. So you know it'll depend on you know what the patient's clinical status is. Were they just intubated, or have they been on the vent for a week? Um, again, their body habitus. There are particular guidelines for um, patients with higher BMI, so that we're giving them more protein. It'll depends on you know other infusions they get if they're getting um, propofol or D5. So we take all that into consideration when we calculate how much calories and how much protein a patient needs. Okay, OB. Do you when you um, are in the ICU? Do you? generally take dietary suggestion or do you do these calculations ever yourself or do you kind of just like follow what they say? What's your preference? I definitely must uh, uh, take the advice and the suggestions of, of uh, anyone who's rounding on the team. So, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, no, I find it extremely helpful and, and, and I'm not going to sit here and, and say that I'm, completely up to date with all the the latest um, um, nutritional guidelines, which is why it's so helpful when you have a a trained uh, registered clinical dietitian, especially one that focuses on ICU. I think it's extremely helpful um, when they're with us. But like, it's kind of like what you mentioned before, you know, every decision you make, or at least for me, every decision I make, it's about data points. So it's not someone tells you one thing and you act immediately unless it's some kind of emergency. It's uh, it's about data points. So, you know, someone with a distended abdomen who's not having bowel movements and is having significant amount of residuals, well, you know, that's ileus. And then that's the kind of patient where, you know, I'm not giving feeds until I can get the bowels going, you know, but I've had a lot of suggestions of, you know, changing from vital to two cal or, or changing from Jevity to, to Glucerna and adding protein. And I mean, I, I pretty much, I take, I take a lot of those suggestions and I'm like, uh, I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. You know? Yeah, no, I'm very open. I think, I think the key is, I mean, you know, I, I think that's the beauty of, of, of rounding with, uh, with a team 
that has uh, um, highly trained expertise. You get pers- you get all sorts of of multiple perspectives uh, from from highly trained individuals, and and, and you know you got to take that advice and and those suggestions, and 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 I'm very grateful uh-huh. to receive them. Good. Yeah, very good. You sound like somebody would be nice to round with, honestly. <laughs> Some of the older docs when I first started nursing were not as open to <laughs> suggestions. No, <laughs> the I, ones that it, have been 80 years old, you know. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's 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 through our open-mindedness that we that we that we're able to push ahead and, and learn. You know, I I I'm learning too. You know, I mm-hmm. I'm only a year and a half out of training. So so there's still there's still a lot more that I personally need to know. And, and quite frankly, if you want me to be honest with you, especially when it comes to the nutritional aspects, because I think for, for a lot of intensivists, you know, like even today, you know, this is a weekend. So I, I mean, I did not see a dietitian over the weekend, but there were a few patients that were put on the ventilator, you know, that I intubated myself maybe yesterday or that were intubated overnight. And I know that they haven't had nutrition. So instead of just you know, I don't. I don't think it's it's a little bit difficult in terms of resources to get a dietitian involved, uh, depending on wh- what institution you're at and and um, how resourceful the, the the facility is. So at least in my situation, I knew I'm not going to get a dietary consult at least until some t- you know Monday earliest. Mm-hmm. But I want the patient fed today, so right. I just uh, I just put in my own regimen. And usually, what I'll do is I'll say start at ten and advance to thirty. And I think I might have just put vital on everyone. And then I would have just, I would have just gone from there, but at least possible. But, I done. but, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, um, I've done that many times over a weekend and the dietitian comes up to me on, on, on the following Monday and says, Hey, uh, Dr. Nosey, I, I think we should probably switch to this and switch to that. And, or maybe switch to this and do that. I'm like, okay, let's, uh, I'm all for it. <laughs> let's, let's go. Yeah. I do say when in doubt, do vital AF. That's uh, usually the one I go to. That's what I've learned. That's (laughs) what I've learned. I used to be as a resident, it was all about Jevity. And this was maybe like like five, six years ago. I think Jevity was the thing. I remember that. Yeah, Yeah. Jevity (laughs) was the thing. But now it seems every time I put something in and it's not vital, it gets switched to vital. That or two cal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What happened to what happened to two cal? Here's the thing with two cal. Two cal. I mean, it's good because it's concentrated, but it's a pretty high fat formula. And patients, I feel like Uh, in the ICU, tend to have trouble tolerating it sometimes. But sometimes mm -hmm. they do well with it because it's less fluid. And then I guess just to explain for those not familiar with Vital AF, aside from having the best name of any two feed, (laughs) I do make occasional memes ever. And I would love to have a t-shirt that says Vital AF. I really need to (laughs) down making that for dietitians. But um, I think the reason that a lot of dietitians like using it is because it has a pretty good macronutrient profile. It's high in protein. It's uh, about the same carbohydrate content as Glucerna. And it's also a semi-elemental formula. So the nutrients in it are pre-broken down. And I mean, guidelines say that you don't need to use a semi-elemental formula. I think it can be helpful for ICU patients. What about um, with COVID patients who are prone? Mm-hmm. Are you guys doing feeds for these patients? Inconsistently, yeah. I think. We're, we're doing we're doing trickle. They're not, they're not getting advanced to, to goal, but, you know, 10 to 20 cc's we've, we've been doing. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think same here. Yeah. I think it depends too on just the, if you're able to position the patient. Okay. If you can get them into the reverse T or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we are trying to do at least trickle feeds for those patients, which has been shown to be safe in the literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was surprised. I'll be honest with you. I did not like it at all. I was like, I hate this. This patient's going to aspirate. I was like, I I saw the patient face down. I'm like, no. And then no one aspirated and it was fine. And I was being dramatic. And when you think about, you know, the amount that 10 to 20 CC is, it's like this much fluid and they're getting it over Mm -hmm. the course of an hour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't like it. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so how, how's it been for you guys? Has it been like, how's COVID this year? How's everything been pandemic in general? Um, resources are, are strained. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely been difficult, but at the same time, I think, you know, there's been a, I've definitely, what I find at least with, with where I work, you know, this pandemic has made us as a team a lot stronger. I think, you know, the level of competency in the unit is stronger in, in a sense that, you know, where I work, we weren't, we weren't proning patients prior to the pandemic. And, and I remember one night I was working. Um, I think there was, there were two patients that needed to be proned. And while that needed to be happening, I was in another room intubating someone else who probably needed to be proned after. While I walked out of that intubation, two patients had already been proned, you know, so it went from a situation where I was in the room all the time, actively supervising and and leading the prone where now the nurses are just like, I say, we need to be prone on rounds. And then, and then um, I'll walk somewhere, walk back and they've already done it without even waiting for me. So that level of competency uh, as as grown and I think the camaraderie in the unit which is what I value the most you know what I mean I think you know the the to keep an effective team you know it's it's about the morale and everybody kind of being there for one another and 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 working for to, to keep ourselves up as much as we're trying to maintain these patients you know I think that that mm-hmm. that sense of needing to be there for one another has grown tremendously. So that, that helps a lot and it helps mitigate the burnout because, you know, I would be lying if I said that there isn't a degree of burnout, you know, when, when, when you're seeing an overwhelming burden of patients um, on every single floor, you know, like we have a, a full ICU, but even on all the other floors, it's almost like there's a satellite ICU there because those patients in other situations, they would be ICU patients. You know, so so in a difficult time mm-hmm. to see people coming together, it's helpful and it helps you keep going. Certainly. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. I mean, Abby, we're both in New York City, so we both went through the spring and now we're seeing a bit of a surge, not quite as bad as before. But I'm definitely very proud of the way um, my coworkers and I came together to take this on. I think it made us a lot stronger um, as individual clinicians and as a team Mm -hmm. in general. Yeah, definitely. The thing that I've gained during this pandemic is exactly what you were just talking about learning from one another. I mean, 
the reason why you're both here right now is because I don't really know a lot about this topic and I want to learn about it, you know, and like who better to come to than, you know, you guys. So, um, I, I've just been so, you know, dietary and, uh, respiratory and, you know, team members that aren't just nursing team members. That's really like where I've, I've gained a lot of information from these other, uh, you know, other sources now. And it's, it's really, like you're saying, it's made us stronger. I mean, it, it's been a tough year. I mean, certainly it's been, it's been a, ride. It's, it's been it's a little been a, while. It's been a tough ride. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think the, the biggest thing is uncertainty. You know, there's always uncertainty mm-hmm. in, in every aspect in terms of what, what is the next day going to look like, you know, it, um, there's a there's new strains because this is, a, this is a virus that can mutate. There's new strains, you know, is 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 the next strain going to bring forth another wave of, of patients that we won't be able to necessarily or will strain ourselves in having to accommodate uh, the patients that uh, um, get afflicted with this. There's a lot of uncertainty, but you know, I think it's just uh, um, leaning on each other is is, is and, and uh, obviously trying to be a an advocate and an educator outside of the ICU to help people understand the importance of, of adhering to, to safety guidelines. I mean, I think that's the only way and that's, um, you know, forward and the only way to try to, to get through all of this. Absolutely. Um, are you guys frustrated that you still, I mean, we're almost a year, like you said, and now um, you still have to advocate for masks and we still have to say the same that it goes over you know, right? <laughs> is, that, is that frustrating well I was working <laughs> Christmas weekend and it was definitely really frustrating when I opened up Instagram and everyone I knew seemed to be on vacation and not caring that there was a pandemic um, I definitely do mm-hmm. see the burnout out there and I think that's I can simultaneously empathize with it a little bit but it also makes me just incredibly frustrated at the same time that we just can't seem to do these basic things that mm-hmm. we know can help get this virus under control. Uh, yeah, I live in I live in the state of Georgia, and and oh this state is wide open, like wide open nightclubs, like everything is open, and people kind of oh wear wear the mask or not wear the mask depending on uh, at their own disposition. You know, it's it, it, people are doing as they choose here. And, and it's allowing this virus to continually interact with human hosts uh, liberally and, and potentially acquire mutations. So that's a, that's a frustrating thought that goes through me. You know, I, I start thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, there's new strains here, but how are new strains formed? New strains are formed through liberal interaction with human hosts, right? Because we know vir- viruses mm-hmm. don't replicate and maintain their structure as well as, you know, human DNA when they when it replicates does you know their, their their ability to do so without acquiring new, new mutations isn't uh, isn't as stable. So the only thing that runs through my head is the more this virus is able to interact with a human host, the more the chances are of of it acquiring new mutations. And mm-hmm. will it get to a point where the vaccines that are currently out uh, um, become obsolete? And, and, and are rendered ineffective. That's the, I, I play that scenario in my head because I feel like if that happens, then we're back to January, 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I totally that, agree. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. We're giving the virus bodies. I mean, we're exactly we're doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're serving yeah. it up. Oh my we're God. giving them PO intake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that Dietary. was not accurate on a microbio level, but <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I have a friend who is from the UK and her family is there and she kind of said the same thing. It's just it's a mess. Like it's just up to the individual um, I don't know if they have states or areas of the country mm -hmm. to decide yeah. what they want to do. And and based on their politics, they, they decide. And a lot of the places, like you said, are just wide open. Yeah, we fell behind when 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 this all became political. Yeah. You know, it, it, it became political and 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 wearing the mask was about civil liberties and, and whatnot. Once, once we started talking about that, rather than talking about how important it is to protect each other and ourselves, then we, we, we got behind the eight ball. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Um, okay. You want to talk about vent settings a little bit? <laughs> sure. Um, I have, I have questions about vent settings because when I saw my first intubated COVID patient, I was like, what's the peep? I don't understand. Like what's happening. Can, can you just like explain that a little bit? You know, so, so the first thing um, that, that you must realize is, you know, no, no two patients, the, the, the most important thing is no two patients are going to be the same. So, so intubating one patient in room A and putting them on the ventilator and putting another patient in room B on the ventilator it are, are going to be different in the sense that the settings that each may need to, to optimally ventilate and oxygenate, you know, their strategies are going to be um, um, potentially completely different. Um, when I put a patient on a ventilator, it is because, you know, their work of breathing and, and their respiratory drive is, has become so profound that they risk damaging their own lungs by the amount of negative inspiratory force that they generate. So when you take a, a breath, you're generating ne you know, negative inspiratory force that brings air into your lungs. But if you generate so much of a breath because you're breathing so hard because your lungs are so inflamed, that you just, you need to struggle to get that breath in. You actually are liable to injure your own lungs. So at that point, if I can't mitigate that with, uh, by giving them opioids and maybe Presidex and awake proning, then I make the decision to, to put them on the ventilator. Um, if that's agreeable with the patient and, and their, and their family. Um, for a lot of people, um, the two common ventilator modes that most people initially know, know of our um, volume control, which focuses more on like a, a, a flow, flow delivery to a, to a certain target volume and uh, pressure controlled breath, which where you set a, a certain pressure and the ventilator will deliver that pressure uh, for a certain amount of time, right? A pressure time delivered breath and whatever volume you get from it is the volume you get from it. Um, the the advantage of volume control a volume controlled breath is say i put you on a ventilator i want you to breathe 12 times and i want you to receive 400 mls of tidal volume for each breath then the ventilator will give you 
400 mLs of tidal volume per each breath. The problem is if the lungs are so stiff that it requires an exorbitant amount of pressure to reach that tidal volume, then you're liable to cause more lung injury by just the amount of force required to open up the lungs and get that breath in. And I'm sure you've probably heard of this thing called plateau pressure, which is the pressure related to the lungs itself, not you know the, the actual conducting airways in the tube, but actually the pressure left in the lungs when you hit the inspiratory pause button and you pause all the flow going in and out. That's the pressure left in the lungs. And you don't want that pressure to exceed 30, otherwise you're liable of causing more, more lung injury. And above 35, they, they have this thing called barotrauma, which is you know pressure-induced trauma to the lungs. Um, and that's when people develop, I don't know if you've seen subcutaneous emphysema, pneumomediastinums or, or pneumothorax, that's all yeah. pressure and volume-induced lung injury. So that's the caveat with volume control. You know, you, you can ventilate your patient because you're guaranteeing them a, a certain tidal volume, but if the lungs are that stiff and it, might, it may come at the expense of high airway pressures, that can be injurious. So that's where pressure control is, is a little bit more advantageous because you, you set an inspiratory pressure and depending on the compliance of the lung itself, that'll determine your tidal volume. But if I define the limit of pressure that I want in the lungs, I can almost guarantee that, uh, that the lung won't be injured by, by, um, by my form of breath delivery. So let's say I only want, I only want 15, 15 uh, 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 pressure above PEEP. If, if my PEEP is five and my inspiratory pressure is 15 then a the total airway pressure will be 20. And that'll be that'll be the limit of pressure. And obviously, a total a total airway pressure of twenty is is very unlikely to to cause lung injury because that's a that's a pretty low pressure. So the the caveat with that is if you have non-compliant lungs, then for that fifteen of pressure above your PEEP, you um you may not get much of a tidal volume, so you might not be able to ventilate your patient enough. Um, PEEP itself stands for positive end expiratory pressure. And, and the premise behind that is the ventilator, let's say your, your PEEP is left to zero, okay? And the ventilator delivers a positive air, air um, delivered breath. It's generating positive airway pressure. At the end of expiration, if that pressure drops to zero, all the flow leaves, all the airflow leaves out of the lungs and the lungs kind of close in off themselves. So you don't want, you don't want the lungs opening and smacking close and then share, creating shearing stress to open because that's what we call atelectotrauma, which causes more lung inflammation. And in an already inflamed state, this is obviously counterproductive. So you don't want that. So you set some positive end airway expression, uh, positive end expiratory pressure to kind of keep the airways a little bit open so that they don't necessarily close in on themselves. Also, there's this concept called lung recruitment, which you've, which you've all probably heard of. Lung recruitment is the fact that in, in, in pneumonia, 
this is an inflamed condition. There is interstitial and inflammatory exudate, which is fluid, which is kind of collapsing the airways, right? This, this extra lung water diminishes the lung compliance and makes it harder for the lungs to open. So there's less volume in the lungs to begin with. And that lung, that volume in the lungs, because there's so little lung compliance, the volume in the lungs is below its ideal starting point, which makes it harder to open. So you might want to add extra PEEP, you know, even up to 10 or 15 to just help recruit more lung tissue to perform gas exchange. So it's not uncommon to see people on, let's say 15 of PEEP. That's because they have so many collapsed airways that you're, you're adding that extra PEEP to try to just open and recruit more lung tissue and, and, inc- and improve your oxygenation and your ventilation. So what it is, Oh, sorry. Is there any danger of having such a high PEEP like that or Absolutely. is it fine? No, no, it could yeah. be. It could be, you know, PEEP has to be titrated carefully. You know, it's not one of those things where, Oh, well, you know, they're, they're the oxygenation is low. So I'm just going to keep, you know, dialing up the, up. dialing up the PEEP. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that because the thing is when you turn up your PEEP, you're, you're adding more airway pressure, like more air pressure into the lungs. But you can, there comes a point where you open the alveoli by adding to some distending pressure, which is what PEEP is, is distending pressure. But then you can over distend alveoli, at which end when you've exceeded the point of, the op, of optimal opening and now have crossed into the threshold of alveolar over distension, not only do those alveoli no longer contribute to, to gas exchange, right? You know, uh, um, CO2 clearance and O2 absorption, but they're liable to cause more injury and, and, if, and air escape, pneumothorax, uh, um, um, subcrimphysema. That's where a lot of these things come from. So there are, there are so many different ways to titrate PEEP. Um, Recruitment maneuvers aren't really in style anymore. But what I like to do is best peep calculations where where you um, you'll you'll set it to a you'll set your, your your ventilator to a certain peep and you'll basically calculate the compliance, which is basically volume over pressure. And you want to see what your at what peep do you get your best uh, static compliance, which is what I typically, which is my preferred way of doing it. But even then. Um, to truly do a good measurement on that, you have, it, it could take time. I mean, you have to set one peep, do your measurements, and then maybe come back half an hour later after you've switched it to another peep to really allow the lung to fully recruit and then assess your compliance. But I feel like that's the best way. There's other, other ways to do it. You, I mean, obviously this would be a lot more labor intensive and resource intensive, but some people, you can even, if you could even do serial CT scans, at different PEEP levels to, to assess how much lung you've recruited on different, at, at different peep levels of PEEP. Maybe if you had a C-arm, we don't have a C-arm where I work, but if you... Yeah, your nurses <laughs> are not going to allow that. <laughs> if, you have, if, if you have a C-arm, you can do that. Um, another, what I posted on yesterday 
was kind of a, a hybrid mode, which is called a, a PRVC, which has gained a lot of traction over the last couple of years because it kind of combines some of the, some of the best features of, of pressure control and volume control and puts it into one mode. So in, in, in PRVC, you, it's an adaptive mode of ventilation where you, let's say I want 400 cc's of tidal volume per, per breath. Um, the ventilator will give a few test breaths to kind of determine the compliance of the lungs. And once it's kind of figured out, you know, what the compliance of the lungs are, it will administer that volume with the lowest amount of airway pressure needed to deliver the breath, which is what kind of why I made that post on flow dyssynchrony because, you know, it can kind of work against you in a sense that if you're doing all the efforts yourself, then you can basically trick the ventilator into assuming that, well, you know, we don't need to give that much support anymore. And then you'll, and that's why the, the ventilator waveform looks scooped in because the patient is generating their own negative inspiratory force. Like if you look at the pressure waveform on a pressure control or a PRBC mode, which are mostly pressure delivered breaths, you get a nice square waveform in your, in your pressure, in your, in your pressure waveform, which is usually the top waveform. If you look at a, a, someone who's flow starved or air hungry or has a high respiratory drive on, 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 PRBC, it'll kind of look like scooped in, you know, it'll look like a, mm. like a big ice cream scoop on each breath. That's because the ventilator, they're basically, they've dropped the pressure in the circuit by their own efforts. And the ventilator is now progressively giving less and less support. And when patients tire out and the ventilator isn't giving a lot of support, then when they've completely tired out, there can be a period where they don't receive any ventilation or very minimal ventilation because the ventilator has to readapt to giving them more support. And it's that window of, of little to no ventilation on top of all the dyssynchrony and all the, you know, all the, all the auto peep that they generate during that time. That's dangerous. That's very interesting. How long does it take for it to adjust? So, so on PRB, like when you send someone to PRBC, it usually takes, you know, two to three breaths to, to adapt, to figure out the compliance of the lungs. And then, then it's, it's smooth sailing. So I think it's a good mode for mostly a passive patient, you know, like someone who is, uh, is, is rather compliant and um, does not have much of a high drive or has a good amount of analgo sedation um, that they don't have a lot of respiratory drive. Otherwise, I think it's best to just put these patients on pressure control because on pressure control, you, you, um, they can still have their own efforts, but the ventilator is going to support them because you've said, no matter what, I want um, uh, 15 of pressure for each breath regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it'll, it'll give them that, yeah. I mean, forgive me because this was forever ago, but I used to work in an area, it was more like LTAC. It was like very stable uh, trach and vent patients. And um, we would sometimes have a setting on our vettings. I think it was like SIM or, or something. SIMV? Yeah, SIMV. Yeah. Is it similar to that or no? SIMV is, is um, like it, 
intermittent mandatory ventilation and and, this, and and the premise behind that is it was it was designed i guess as a weaning mode or a mode for patients that are kind of uh um maybe dyssynchronous because in a sense you can kind of the patient can have their own efforts but the ventilator will also give them breaths so it's it's one of those modes where okay i want to i i want at least eight breaths delivered per minute. And those eight breaths, you can set it to be either PRVC breaths or pressure control delivered breaths or volume control delivered breaths. And in between that, the patient can take their own breaths and there'll be like pressure support breaths. That's a pressure support is basically the, the standard when it comes to like weaning patients from the ventilator. So you put them on CPAP or mm-hmm. pressure support, which is basically the 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 patient mostly dictates everything and when they initiate the ventilator the, the ventilator just uh supports them but there's no set rate so if the patient on, on simv you can say i want a pressure supported breath and set the pressure to you know five eight or ten or fifteen and whenever the patient initiates their own breath they'll get assistance of 15 of pressure for that breath Otherwise, if they're most if they're passive, then the ventilator will do what it's programmed to do and give them eight breaths of whatever you had already set, whether it's PRVC or 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 uh, pressure control or, or or volume control delivered breaths. So in that sense, it's thought that you can you can wean it you can wean the patients off of it because you can you know they can breathe and they can have their own breaths and then they can also relax and mm-hmm. the ventilator will give a predetermined amount of breaths, but it's been found that, I mean, that's not that great of a weaning mode. If I want to wean someone that's in that sense, uh, uh, I, I find it's easier to just, just put them on a, a conventional mode and, and just drop the rate. And then, because, you know, pressure control really means pressure assist control, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you set the rate to six, the patient can breathe over. And and that's what that's the assisted breath. If they take an extra breath, they'll they'll get that assistance by, you know, fifteen of pressure or volume assist control, right? So you set a rate, they get volume targeted breaths. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they decide to take an extra breath, then they'll get that same tidal volume only assisted by the ventilator. So I think, you know, when you when you when all with all things considered. You know, SIMV has not been shown to be a great weaning mode. We we kind of hated it, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I could talk about vents all day, so I don't want to uh, talk your ear off about it. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Let me ask you, Stephanie, about how – so I want to – now I want to tie it all together – how has your job changed? Like you, you're talking about, you know, calculations and et cetera. What's changed? What's what's different about a long-term vented patient? And it not it doesn't even have to be COVID, just in general, um, versus somebody who's coming in, it's a short stay, we extubate them, they get to go home. I think we're definitely seeing the long-term effects of having a prolonged ICU course in a lot of our COVID patients who are fortunate enough to make it out of the ICU. I think definitely over uh, the summer in particular, we had a lot of the uh, long hauler patients on our medical floors and on our rehab um, floors. One thing we definitely saw that we hadn't seen before was these uh, 
COVID wounds. Have you seen these in your patients? They're like pressure ulcers, but caused from, I think, the decreased circulation. So we're definitely seeing a lot of patients coming out with a lot of weight loss and uh, with very extensive wounds. So those have been, um, and also they have no desire to eat to um, help those wounds. So we've definitely been working along that. I think at our hospital, at least, um, that did make us realize, um, by us, I mean the staff in general, that we really do need to pay more attention to nutrition. So we actually, the dietitians, all did in-services on our units, talking to the nurses, just kind of about culture around tube feedings and how to think about tube feedings, not holding tube feedings for unnecessary reasons. So I guess it was a silver lining that it did make um, people think about nutrition a little bit more seeing uh, these debilitated patients. Yeah. What about you? Same, same question. I've definitely noticed some abnormalities and, and what I've come to understand is that this virus can do quite, quite about anything in terms yeah. of causing different complications, um, whether it comes to wounds or, or um, arterial insufficiencies or, or, or vascular thrombosis. And I've seen that and I've seen patients come off the ventilator and, and, and kind of be apathetic in general towards um, nutrition or you know just even any kind of conversation I've seen someone break I've seen patients break that over time um, I think one of the thing one of the things about working in the ICU is that a lot of these patients get lost to well not necessarily lost to follow-up but you know when you exhibit these patients among so many that need to come in um, I don't get to follow the course long enough to see you know how they overall progress with uh with with some of these things i mean that we're i obviously have the same problem i i see these patients for two two three weeks sometimes i mean some of them they're intubated and and then i i don't know how it's been for you but for us at least we've we've had trouble extubating a lot of those you know those long haul covid patients then they just seem to linger forever on the vent yeah you know um it, it's a lot of out of the box thinking one of the things uh, um about a lot of these covid patients is is the way my mindset has changed you know initially it was just due to standard things you learned about ARDS lung protective ventilation proning them maybe you know uh, uh, uh referring patients for ecmo if you just if you have that much difficulty oxygenating or ventilating. Um, but even the standard things that you learn in critical care, like um, daily interruption of sedation, you can't necessarily do that successfully in all these patients because some patients, they have such thick secretions that they cannot stay comfortable when you, when, when you try to ease the sedation and wake them up. They're extremely agitated. Even if you're putting them, giving them anxiolytics or, benzos or, or even ketamine, which is, uh, I think is an excellent analgesic. Some patients, when you turn the sedation down, that sensation of breathlessness kicks in like that. And, and they engage in, in deleterious patterns of, uh, of, of respiration that need to be immediately controlled. And, and one of the things I'm very passionate about is, is vent dyssynchrony and I'm always an advocate for you do not deal with bent dyssynchrony by sedating and sedating, which is, you know, you see as a, as a common practice, but a lot of these patients, you don't have a choice, right? You do not have a choice. You have to definitely 
maximize your analgesia, but you have no choice. You have to sedate them. And those are the patients that I say, okay, I need early tracheostomy. If I have a patient that I can bring down the oxygen settings, like I can, I think I can get their lungs to rest and have them gradually improve. But the only way to do that is to literally snow them. I need to keep you snowed the entire time. And, and um, um, you, it's going to inevitably end up in a tracheostomy. Then I would advocate for an early tracheostomy, a tracheostomy as soon as possible. Why? Because a tracheostomy will facilitate coming off of sedation because it's a lot more, it's a lot more comfortable to have a tracheostomy than to have, you know, the breathing tube in the mouth down the throat. So it'll facilitate better neurological recovery because I can come off all the, you know, propofol, fentanyl, well, maybe not fentanyl is so easily, but you'd be able to come off propofol, fentanyl, Versed, and all these sedatives you're using and, um, and, and allow the patient to regain a state of wakefulness and interactiveness. And, um, and it's more comfortable for them. Yeah, you buy them time on the ventilator, but if you lose the window to trach because they've been engaging in dyssynchronous patterns that have only led to further lung injury, then what you instead do is advance them down the progression of ARDS. And once these patients uh, reach the final stage of ARDS, which is a fibrotic stage, then for the most part, it's game over. Um, okay, Stephanie, this one's for you. Um, this is from Tanya. So she says, um, can we run at goal on a paralyzed patient or does it have to stay at trickle? Do you have a preference on that? Um, so paralytics work on skeletal muscle. They don't work on the smooth muscle of the gut. So you actually mm -hmm. can feed patients. I'm really glad you're not along. Um, <laughs> we, so talked, you, we talked about that the other day. <laughs> yeah. So you can definitely feed on, um, when patients are on paralytics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so paralytics are working on skeletal muscles so that the patients aren't moving, but the gut is smooth muscle tissue and the paralytics don't affect that. So patients should be able to digest and tolerate their feeds all the same. But where does the, uh, is it like an urban legend or would it like, where does that idea come from? Like where people think that they can't do that? I think it's just old practice. I do believe mm -hmm. there's a lot of more recent research showing that it is safe to feed these patients. Mm -hmm. I think just stigma. Yeah. yeah. Really? Stig stigma. But I mean, think about it. If, if paralytics worked on all muscle tissue, then once you start putting someone on it, we'll die. Right. <laughs> you yeah. par paralyze the cardiac muscle. Well, there's no cardiac output, you know? You <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So I'm going to put you both on the spot now. So, okay. because this, this project is about, you know, all of us working together. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so I want to, I want to have you guys talk about nursing for a second. And, uh, you know, if you've had good interactions, bad interactions, uh, you know, anything with nursing. Um, I guess I'll start overall. Um, I have really relied on nurses, especially during the pandemic. So for us, actually, in the early days of the pandemic, we weren't going into patient rooms because we were preserving PPE for people who needed to be in there more. So I was definitely very reliant on the nursing staff to know how patients were eating, how patients were tolerating their feeds. And I super appreciate them taking the time to talk to me about that because I know just how much is going on and um, how 
incredibly overwhelmed that they were. So I have overall very positive things to say. I think um, I'm really glad, you know, we could have this conversation tonight because I think there's definitely things about uh, nutrition and tube feeds in particular. I wish um, I had more of an opportunity to talk to nurses about things like mm -hmm. residuals and feeding on paralytics and well-proned. Um, so I just hope overall, you know, down the line, we can continue to have more communication about these mm -hmm. things. Okay, but the putting you but. on the spot part is to say, give me one of your bad interactions. <laughs> oh, like when I called a nurse to ask how a patient was tolerating tube feeds and she was like, they're not, the feeds are held because the patient's having diarrhea and holding feeds for diarrhea is not indicated. Um, <laughs> and then I checked the chart and the patient's on like three bowel meds and antibiotics. So yeah. that was not an appropriate move in that one case. Yeah. But so overall, like everyone else is great. <laughs> Love nurses. <laughs> okay. PC answer. Okay. I'll accept it. <laughs> okay, okay. What about you? So, so you're looking for mainly bad interaction. <laughs> I want to hear, hear your honest opinion, but I feel like I, I have to tease out the bad stuff because nobody wants to especially publicly right. slam nurses, right? But let's be honest. I work with nurses. I work with some great ones. I work with, uh, you know, a couple. There's always a couple crabby ones too, you know. Um, so I, I guess the point is I don't find it helpful for us to just always like kind of praise each other. We all know that behind closed doors, we all have little qualms here and there once in a while. And I think it's helpful actually to kind of get it out because like if, um, you know, maybe there's something that I do that annoys the dietitian at my job and I don't even know it, you know? Yeah. You know, you know um, what I would start with saying is, you know, at, at the at the at the physician level, as as the intensivist in the unit, they are spending more time on a personal basis with uh, with with all these patients than I am. Right, I'm just coming, I'm rounding, uh, I'm making my recommendations and putting in orders, and then I'm moving on. And you know, I do come back and I circle back, but you know, unless there's something changing dramatically, you know, I, I'm not necessarily always there. At that point, I do rely on the insight. Like I tend to heavily rely on the on the insight um, and opinions of the nurses, you know, because that's that's like my my third eye, you know. So I rely on that heavily. But um, the other day, I made a patient DNR, and just DNR because this patient was had progressed at a fibrotic stage of of, of ARDS. To the point, and, and we were at a point where we couldn't ventilate. No matter what, we tried everything. The only thing that can keep this patient going was bagging. So at that point, after trying everything and barely being able to get SATs above 70 without extremely high peak pressures, my thought is, okay, well, you know, this is where we are. Look at the imaging. The, the infiltrates are everywhere. They've been on the vent for 10 days now. This, this is only going one place. So, I, you know, I made the patient a DNR at that time which means DNR, not comfort care or withdrawal care. And I had a disagreement because the nurse went ahead and turned off the levofed, which was, which was not the thing, which was the wrong move. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. it was, yeah. Wow, I'm surprised. <laughs> That's pretty bold. Actually. It is bold, but it was the absolute wrong move because this is a, a, a family member um, that wanted a chance to, get other to call other family member and let everyone know what's going on. And maybe they would have wanted to 
to, you know, we have WebEx where patients can, you know, they can, they can maybe go and we can connect the video email and they can see that. So it's, it's things like that. And, but I, I take the input of everyone seriously, especially the nurses who are spending a lot more patients or a lot more time with the patients than I am. You know what I mean? If a, if a, if a nurse calls me and like, you should, can I see you in bed three? I usually go right away because, you know, if they're calling you to the room, there's, there's, there's something going on. Yeah. But, but I, I do reserve the right to disagree um, with, with any suggestion, but I, I do believe that it's through our, our differing opinions that we learn from each other and grow stronger. Abby, can I redo my answer? Redo your answer. To be a little less PC. I think now that I have a better idea of, uh, what you were looking for with that question. I should have explained it better. Yeah. yeah sorry. And then wait, fine. you, you might as well just go right into the next one. Cause then I'm going to flip it. I want to hear dietary versus MD. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, so what I'll say is, um, you know, again, I super appreciate, you know, everything nurses have done filling us in on patients. I think where I and other dietitians get frustrated is when nurses, um, you know, treat nutrition kind of like a nuisance almost like Mm -hmm. it's a very, like it's an unimportant thing and, you know, feeds get blamed for things unnecessarily or held unnecessarily or just not taken seriously. I mean, I've seen, I've heard, heard of at least nurses, you know, just hanging the wrong tube feeds. And we have to consider tube feeding, especially as part of the medical treatment. It's not something that can be taken lightly. So I think just continuing to talk about it, educate on why it's important um, is going to be important um, going forward. Yeah, I totally agree. I've seen that. And I'm just going to be honest, I've felt that a little bit. I mean, when we're talking about, you know, somebody who, you know, they have really terrible COVID and I'm constantly suctioning them and I'm in and out of the room and I'm sweating and, you know, and then I get a phone call and it's like, did you start the tube feed? And like, you can have a tendency to be like, no, you know, (laughs) no, I I can definitely empathize with that too, which is why like, I'm hesitant to, you know, jump on providing criticism because I can see everything from all sides. Yeah, but I understand what you're saying. I mean, long term, like it is very important for the patient and it is a priority and it's just as important as any other thing that we're doing on medication or anything, you know, and we have to be vigilant with it. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Tell me your bad interact, good and bad interaction, but you know, the bad is more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is, I work at a teaching hospital and most of my interactions are with residents Mm -hmm. and a couple of PAs as well. Um, But, you know, I think generally residents, they're receptive, they're aware of what they don't know about nutrition. I think where it gets dicey is when the resident gets caught in between their attending. Mm -hmm. So if I'm bringing up a significant issue of, oh, should we do two phase, should we do TPN? The resident will say, oh, I need to go check with my attending. And I just never hear back from that resident. So I think that sometimes maybe it's not so much, you know, the doctor's fault, but just the way the chain of communication works. Absolutely. Um, Obi, you ever have qualms with dietary? Um, Not, not typically. I think the, you know, when I first started my job, um, I think one thing that they were used to is every patient that went on the ventilator, um, got full feeds, you know, I guess advanced to a a rate of 50 um, on whatever tube feeds they were on. 
And my thing is I'm, I was more of a trickle feed kind of guy, you know, or like I said, I usually just put people up to 20 or 30 and I just leave it there. You know, uh, like I said, I, I'm not, I do not have the, the nutrition education that, uh, that you would have Stephanie. Um, so I'm definitely not as well versed in that aspect, but it's just, you know, my only thing is thinking about the other potential unwanted uh, uh, complications like hyperglycemia or, or ileus that can get in the way of me extubating patients. And, you know, the stuff that I've read hasn't shown any difference in terms of at least, you know, mortality or outcomes if I advanced them to, you know, full versus uh, at least in respiratory failure. Right. Uh, you in know, the first getting, week, especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I advance them to full versus trickle. So, you know, it was kind of that back and forth a little bit, but then we finally understood each other and, 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 and that was it. You know, I think, I, you know, the, where I work right now, there's, um, there's one or two diet, dietitians that I, that I interact with and, uh, and we get along, we, we get along great. You know, it was just that little disagreement in the beginning and since then there, there haven't been any issues. Mm-hmm. I feel like the common theme here is just like, let's all talk. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it comes down to in the end. Absolutely, absolutely. And and one thing I, I tell everyone I work with, um, I am always will. I might not agree, but I am always willing to talk. Like I said, it's our differences, it's our, it's our unique differences that that you know allow us to to learn from each other. I'm still trying to learn. You know, I'll probably after this conversation, I I've started to realize I need to start reading some more nutrition stuff hit me up thank you guys so much this was really wonderful seriously it was really of course yeah this was wonderful I learned stuff it's great meeting you all too as did i you as well maybe i'll see you around brooklyn someday when uh, we're not in the pandemic maybe yeah yeah yes. <laughs> when it when it opens back up yeah yeah all right, all right. Y'all yeah. Stay safe. Good night. yeah stay safe bye, bye.